The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 18th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So maybe you're checking out The Gist for the first time, having heard about it from Ira Glass. Now, you should know that our main topic of focus here at The Gist is, and always will be, metallurgy and the poultry sciences. I would not want to give the wrong impression. Ira played some clips on the show. I stand by my statements that were played on This American Life, but we are fundamentally a show about metallurgy and poultry science. I want to be clear on that. All right, let's get to the news. An experiment was conducted to evaluate the effect of free-range days on carcass yield and meat quality of a local chicken breed. In another experiment, a parental generation was assembled from an unselected, random-bred, Japanese-fattening quail line. Seven sires and 14 dams were selected, and each sire was paired with two dams. In metallurgy news, microstructure evolution of aluminum, magnesium, silicon alloy during hot backward extrusion process was simulated with the combined approaches of finite element method and microstructure prediction model. The result, okay, did that work? Did we weed out the interlopers, the incurious, the people who won't sit through some good metallurgy news? I don't want them anyway. Thank you for sticking with us. All right, now here's the regular show open. So I was watching Anchorman 2 with my kids, and first of all, You never hear anyone saying, thank God for the PG-13 rating. But I'm going to stand up for the PG-13 rating. I'm also going to stand up for the rating agency that provides it. The only thing we're supposed to say about the rating agency is, how dare you slap an NC-17 rating anytime a female character is in the throes of rapture, but with the guy, he's humping a pastry. Oh, that's funny. It gets an R. Yes, I am up in arms about that. But PG-13, you know, it's weird. If you're not 12 or in a church, you don't really notice profanity. Right. But Anchorman 2, there were just streams of it. It was like I was standing in front of a fire hose of excrement. But that's cool. Except when you have the five and the seven year old, you kind of have to manipulate them around it. So the question is, dad of the year, why were you showing your kids Anchorman 2, a PG-13 movie? And here's why. Last year, we were near Madison Square Park, the boys and I. And all of a sudden, the 70s had just broken out. People in Jordache jeans, people in suede jackets, buses from the Lindsay administration. What's going on? Oh, they're filming Anchorman 2. So I explained to the kids what that meant. And then all the cars that drove by the scene were lined up. And these were all vintage cars. So I picked them up and we looked in the buses, look at how the seats were different. And the guys, I think the guys driving the cabs are the owners of these cars. They were so happy to show everyone how the, the different mechanisms and how the uh, fare meter flag worked. It was a very... Very, very cool history lesson. Now, I'm not going to go out and see Anchorman 2 in the movie theater, but when it came out on DVD, we rented it, popped it in, and this is what we saw. President Carter. Yeah, shit. I mean, President Carter will speak at the summit Tuesday. Tony, did I just curse? Are you kidding me? Shit. I mean, shit. So I said, okay, let's just, you know what? We're going to fast forward to that scene in the park. No problem. And so here it is, like at least an hour into the movie. Here is the entirety of the scene they filmed on Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street. Hey, gang. You know what would make this great day even better? What? Perms for everyone. That's it, Daddy? The kids asked. And that was it. And let that be a lesson to you, I said. Actually, I learned a lot, he said. And I looked at my son and I said, boy, what did you learn? And he said, that President Carter shit. 
On today's show, a single show, a single topic, actually four single topics, we're having a debate. Four luminaries, the word is defined by people who are clever, who I have shared or do share an office with, are debating the great icons of America. It is a 17-minute long debate, but this is America, damn it. And in the spiel, the stats around police killings. But first, what happens when George Washington tries to take down a panda? It includes 19 museums and galleries and a national zoo. It is Kim Jong-un's villa. No, it's the Smithsonian Institution. But what's the best item in the Smithsonian? Ridiculous question, but excellent thing to debate. So this summer, the Smithsonian has been engaged in a summer showdown, a bit of a smackdown to establish the most iconic item in its collection, however you define iconic. Here were some of the nominees that lost. The Enid Haupt Garden at the Smithsonian, loser. The Museum of Natural History nominated a 66-million-year-old T-Rex, loser. Space Shuttle Discovery, loser. The Cafe at the Museum of the American Indian, loser. Wonder Woman comic book number one, loser. We, though, have four remaining nominees, the final four. So what we're going to do now on The Gist is debate them. We have chosen a champion for each nominee. In conjunction with the League of Women Voters, we will be engaged in a debate. And at the end of the debate, I don't know, one of them will be iconic. You guys can vote on Facebook. So here are the final four in the Smithsonian. The National Zoo puts forth Bow Bow, the giant panda cub, And speaking for Bao Bao will be Dan Coyce, Slate's culture editor. Hello, Dan. Hello, everyone. This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie, the full version. And speaking for This Land is Your Land will be Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Hi. The Star-Spangled Banner, not the song, the actual banner, the big old flag. And speaking for the flag will be Slate's deputy editor, John Swansburg. Say hello, John. Uh, My fellow Americans, I'm very proud to be here today. And finally, the George Washington, the so-called Lansdowne portrait from the Portrait Gallery, George Washington extending his right hand. And speaking up for George Washington, a special guest, the host of On the Media, Brooke Gladstone. Hello, Brooke. Hello. Here's how our debate's going to go. There will be opening statements, brief opening statements. There will be a question round. There will be a disparagement round. And finally, brief closing statements. Speaking first for Bao Bao, the giant panda cub, Dan Coyce. It's easy to underestimate Bao Bao. Uh, she's only a year old. Uh, she's not even a year old. She turns a year old one week from now. She is, in fact, just a panda. But in fact, Baba represents two great things about America. She represents the panoply of the immigrant experience that has helped to make America what it is. Baba has Chinese parents, but yet is American, born right here in America. She deserves citizenship and iconhood. And she also, for Smithsonian-specific purposes, represents the fact that the Smithsonian is not just a collection of curios and obsolete items of Americana like portraits or old flags or old songs that you sang in first grade music class. The Smithsonian is a research institution full of scientists doing science, making the world a better place. It's not just Judy Garland's shoes. It is, in fact, the work of science. And that is time. Speaking for This Land is Your Land, Julia Turner. 
Woody Guthrie's classic song, This Land is Your Land, is, I think, perhaps the most beautiful song that's ever written about this country. And in this song, where he highlights the natural beauty of America, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, that ribbon of highway, the endless skyway, he also focuses in on America's disenfranchised, uh, the fact that this country belongs to the rich and to the poor. And the other thing that I think makes this song great is that it has a sense of humor and a sense of mischief. You will not find either of those things in any of the other contestants here today. But his verse, a sign was painted, said private property, but on the backside it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. There's a wit there and a charm that is quintessentially American, and that is why this land should win. Thank you, Julia Turner. Speaking for the Star-Spangled Banner, it is John Swansburg. Go ahead, John. Voting for the Star-Spangled Banner is a two-for-one. First off, obviously, you're voting for the flag. You're voting for a beautiful representation of our national standard. This is a flag that symbolizes the world over the values that America believes in, liberty, justice for all, the rule of law. It's a flag that flies on the moon. Buzz Aldrin put it there. It's also a wonderful relic. It's a flag that literally flew above Fort McHenry in 1814 during a battle in the War of 1812, which is often called our Second Battle of Independence. And it flew all night during bombardment from these awful British cannons, and it emerged the next day, tattered but still flying, a symbol of American resilience. And now, speaking for George Washington, it is Brooke Gladstone. Okay, now I don't want to win this on points, although I absolutely could, because I looked up the meaning of icon and all the synonyms, and it's image, idol, portrait, picture, representation, likeness, symbol, and so on. This is the only real icon icon in this actual competition, but specifically this particular portrait by Gilbert Stuart. Initially, when I chose it, I thought it was the Anthenium portrait, which is unfinished and which is the likeness that's used on the dollar bill. But the Lansdowne portrait with the extended hand is really just as good for many reasons. For instance, Stuart apparently said he hoped to make a fortune by painting the president. And what could be more colloquially iconic than that? Washington's unusually clenched facial expression comes from his famous false teeth, which symbolizes America his long interest in good dental health, and (laughs) he has books on the floor. That's a subtext that suggests he's a little bit Jewish. I draw this inference from George Plimpton, who once distinguished the Upper West Side, at the time very much new money, lit, crit, Jewish enclave, from the old money, waspy, patrician Upper East Side by observing that on the East Side, the books were always on the shelves, while on the West Side, they're always piled on the floor. All right. (laughs) Now, one last point I want to make. You're way over, Brooke, but go ahead. (laughs) Quickly. You see a little depiction of the stars and stripes on the back of the chair, so that's covered. You also have the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, a couple of eagles on the table leg, so this is an all-for-one. All right. Thank you very much. Now let's go to our question round, where each of our icons will have a chance to pointedly, if they choose, question another icon. And I'm going to start this time with Julia Turner. Julia, pick an icon and do some questioning. The Lansdowne portrait, as you admit in your opening statement, is far from the first portrait that comes to mind when you think of our President George Washington. It's not even the most iconic painting of Washington I want to ask, what do you say to the fact that this painting was prepared as a gift for the prime minister of Britain? This was America pandering to the people it had fought hard for independence from. This isn't even an American vision of George Washington for Americans. Okay, there's the question. And to be clear, the verb you use was pandering. 
not pen. Okay. <laughs> Brooke Gladstone, go ahead. It's also in some ways a reproof. He is not dressed in a uh, regal way. He's dressed in a simple black jacket. And I think I can answer your question most simply by saying, we bought it back. And that's iconic. <laughs> Next up, we'll go to Dan Coyce, who's championing the panda. Dan, what question do you have for another icon? I have a question for everyone, in fact, that I would like you to consider. If we are attempting to determine the superior item in the Smithsonian, I ask you one question. If we put all four of these items in a room, which one walks out? <laughs> it's the panda who eats the portrait, smashes the master recording of This Land is Your Land, and then defecates probably on the flag and walks right out of that room. Well, that's going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to let everyone respond. I will note that saying that your icon would defecate on the American flag certainly going to win you points in this debate, Dan. All right, John, maybe you could adhere to the rules and ask one question. John, who is speaking for the Star Spangled Banner, John Swansburg, ask one question to your fellow icon. Uh, I have a question for Dan Coyce, whose uh, icon is just defecated on mine. <laughs> yeah. um, Dan, I would like to know, is it not true that your so-called icon will be returned to China in four years' time to produce more pandas for the People's Republic of China? Uh, don't worry. We'll buy her back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, speaking for George Washington and his portrait is Brooke Gladstone. Brooke, who would you like to put a question to? Which icon? I think I'd like to put it to John about the flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Buss, a flag expert with the American Legion, said that the flag's colors were simply taken from the Union Jack of England. Do you think that compromises its iconic status at all? I don't at all. In fact, I'll uh, go a, a step further. The Star-Spangled Banner, the flag in question, was made from English wool bunting. But that's perfectly natural. England is our mother country. Sure, in 1776, we said we are declaring our independence and we made war with Mother Britain. But today we have a special friendship with the English and they are uh, one of our closest allies. So I have no problem with an English connection. I think it sort of is fitting that our flag should share some colors. And yet it's completely different and no one would ever mistake the two. All right. Now let's go to the disparagement round. You may disparage any or all of your fellow icons. And Dan Coyce, we start with you. Disparage away. I would like to note that This Land is Your Land is not even the best song Woody Guthrie ever wrote, much less the best thing in the Smithsonian. The best song Woody Guthrie ever wrote was obviously More Pretty Girls Than One, an ode to rambling from town to town and realizing that everyone has a pretty girl for you to woo. All right. Excellent disparagement. John Swansburg, disparage away. Bao Bao, the Chinese panda, is a communist. Woody Guthrie... Also a communist. <laughs> Finally, Gilbert Stewart, while probably not a communist, spent the Revolutionary War years in England kowtowing to uh, British nobles. I rest my case. Brooke Gladstone, it is your turn to disparage. I want to disparage John's argument. Is this a test of patriotism or iconography? I want to do a little bit of disparagement of everybody, and I'll do it really fast. Pandas are China's icon. The use of panda diplomacy is famous. China's given away dozens of pandas to dozens of countries. This is not ours. This is just a present. And for us to elevate it to that status just means we're borrowing from China once again. As far as this land is your land, the version we sing, the iconic version, is censored. It doesn't even include the verse that Juliet read. It's an expression more of America 
censoring out the parts we don't like. As far as the flag goes, I've counted more than three dozen flags that use red, white, and blue, including Cambodia, Cuba, Luxembourg, Russia, Iceland, Taiwan. I mean, what's it really mean? Every country has one. You might as well use the Nike swoosh. Julia Turner, it is your turn to be the final disparager. I don't even think I need to spend time disparaging Bao Bao, who is obviously, as Brooke notes, a bonbon given to us by the Chinese to curry favor and in no way seems distinctively American. In fact, I think it besmirches our glorious immigrant past to suggest that Bao Bao is representative of such. I also think that as important as George Washington was and as historically significant as the flag was, Woody Guthrie represents all that is great and glorious about this country, its distinctive spirit, the ability of Americans of all political stripes, even communists, John, to tell their story of American history and to make the country truly belong to all of us. George Washington, the flag, these are both symbols of power. And America is a country about the power of the people. And that is why Woody Guthrie should win. All right. Thank you all for your disparagement. And I would just like to clarify, I hope I haven't put my thumb on the scale in favor of a flag, but I would like to point out that the Luxembourg flag's blue is of a lighter shade than the other ones you mentioned. Fine. (laughs) Now we have our final closing statements. John Swansburg, speaking for the flag, I'd like you to go first. I'd love to go first. So I'd just like to close by saying that unlike my competitors, the Star-Spangled Banner is something that represents the fabric of America. And I think that makes it truly iconic. It was sewn by a 37-year-old widow named Mary Pickersgill, and she was helped in this effort by two young nieces and by a black servant with the wonderful name of Grace Worthy. Now, what's more American than that endeavor? I mean, Woody Guthrie, Gilbert Stewart, George Washington, these are old white dead men. Vote for the flag. Brooke Gladstone, please speak for the Washington portrait in a closing statement. Indentured servant in that era. Was that not a slave? <laughs> not in Baltimore. Not in uh, Baltimore? I believe this is not the question round, Brooke. <laughs> All right. Sorry. You got him um, on his heels. Keep going. Keep okay. Going. Okay. I'm going to keep going here. Playing I Ropa think Panda. the problem is the slippery definition of icon and what exactly it was that the Smithsonian was trying to do. Was it trying to prove its patriotism? Was it trying to prove its relevance? Was it trying to prove its liberal or conservative bona fides? I think that what you wanted from the icon in the Smithsonian was something that represented what the Smithsonian had that no one else had. Now, in this case, lots of people have pandas, so forget about that. Everyone has This Land is Your Land. It's a song. It doesn't own This Land is Your Land. The portrait of Gilbert Stuart, however, doesn't just represent power, as Julia said. It represents the ideals of the states, and it does it in a very schematic way. This is a a one-of-a-kind. It's owned by the Smithsonian. It's an icon. Thank you very much. Julia Turner, please speak in a closing statement for This Land is Your Land. I'd like to return to Dan Coyce's point about which of these icons would walk out of the room. I'm not sure he's correct in his assessment. The pandas at the National Zoo are notorious for just sitting there like lumps, refusing to eat, (laughs) refusing to mate. I think it's very probable that Bao Bao would sit in the corner of the room, leave all three other contenders intact, fall asleep, and not wake up until he gets shipped back to China in four years. I think the icon that might come out of the room with you is Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. Because when I start to sing it, 
It will be in all of your heads for the rest of the day. No, don't do it. <laughs> this, like, don't do it. No. <laughs> oh, say <laughs> Washington, Washington, he's standing in the tongue. Right. When you're a jet, you're a jet. All the... <laughs> Dan Coyce, speak for the panda. I would just like to speak past all you Washington insiders to the real Americans. You're the only one in Washington. (laughs) The ones who are the true judges of this contest, the people of America, who are on their computers right now clicking on things on the internet and perhaps click on a picture of Bob Owl. And he's so fuzzy wuzzy. (laughs) He's so adorable. Look at his tiny little panda paws. He's only a year old. A year-old icon, really. Enjoy him now before he goes back to China. (laughs) All right. I would like to thank you all. I would like to thank the League of Women Voters. I would like to thank WSKR Rochester for sponsoring this debate. (laughs) Guys, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Mike. All right. Now we're all going to be quiet as Julia sings us out. This land is your land. This land is my land. Wait a minute. I did it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Keep that. I would like to direct you to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Slate Gist. And you could vote there. We could vote among the Gist listeners. I mean, you can vote on the actual Smithsonian site, but that closes at midnight. And, you know, will your voice really be heard? So come and check out the icons on our Facebook site. Thank you, because that site was made for you and me. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from California. To the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest, to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. And now the spiel. We are awash in statistics. Well, sports, of course. Sports suffer a surfeit of statistics. I heard this on ESPN's Fantasy Focus today. The lowest total number of walks by any middle infield duo was 22 by the 1909 Brooklyn Superbas. Shortstop Tommy McMillan had 20 walks in 400 PA. Second baseman Whitey Alperman had two walks in 442 PA. We so yearn for statistics that they are thrown at us, even if they are sometimes worthless. So every March Madness, the firm of Challenger and Gray issues an estimate of how much will be lost in productivity during the basketball tournament. It's total nonsense stat, but it gets reported and it gets repeated. It's the same with the wealth estimates in Forbes on the richest list, the cost in dollars of natural disasters, or that the average cost of a wedding is $28,000. Our desire for the numbers overrides the fact that a lot of those numbers, let us say, lack rigor, or in the case of the Brooklyn Superbers, lack relevance. These last few days, a stat has been making the rounds about how often African Americans are killed by U.S. law enforcement. This is a number that is useful, that should be verifiable, and that's certainly knowable. Yet here is how the stat is being expressed. This is Michael Eric Dyson on Face the Nation yesterday. Every 28 hours across America, a black person is killed by a security guard, a police officer, or some other um, executive of the state or police force. And here is the podcast, The Read. This study came out the other day that said 28, every 28 hours, a black person is murdered by someone sanctioned by the state, whether it's police officers or other security guards. So once every 28 hours, which is a weird time frame, but it works out to 313 African-Americans killed by cops. Well, this is a nation of 314 million people. I don't know exactly what to think of that stat. 
I went to the source. It was from a group called Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. The specific report is called Operation Ghetto Storm, and it's subtitled 2012 Annual Report on the Extrajudicial Killings of 313 Black People by Police Security Guards and Vigilantes. First of all, from what I can tell, all the accounts in the report seem real, or at least they were at least reported in reputable newspapers. But once every 28 hours, or just over 300 a year, on its face, ipso facto, that doesn't really mean much. Then there's the complicating factor of including security guards and vigilantes, which seems like a subjective designation. So to give myself some context, I did a comparison. Wikipedia has a list of everyone killed by U.S. law enforcement by year. So I went to 2012. It's broken down by month. I counted everyone who was there, 596 by my count. So about half of those killed by law enforcement were black. Since blacks make up only 13% of the population, that's very high. But it's more or less in line with the horrifying fact that blacks make up about 50% of murder victims. But importantly, I think, the 28-hour stat does not also delve into the issue of how warranted the killings were. So I began to look up individual names of some of the shooting victims that were listed. For instance, one of those who was shot and killed was a man named Rudy Eugene. Rudy Eugene was the perpetrator of the so-called Miami cannibal attack. A police officer came upon Rudy Eugene standing over the naked body of a homeless man, having bitten off the victim's nose and one of his eyes and part of his face. Eugene was ordered to stop. He did not, and he was fatally shot. At least the report did not code this as excessive force. But when Robert Earl Fletcher was stopped by Birmingham police and he fled and his car hit a tree and caught fire, the Malcolm X report did say that that was an example of police using excessive force. Then there was this case. Let me read from the uh, New York Daily News. A knife-wielding man was shot and killed by police after he tried to stab his wife to death in the front yard of their queen's home. Their 17-year-old daughter called 911 after seeing her mother, Sharon, bleeding from her neck and chest. I'm dying, I'm going to die, Sharon wailed, according to witnesses. The wild-eyed husband ignored police orders to drop the blood-soaked blade, cops and witnesses said. He would not listen, said one witness who did not give his name. He just kept walking right at them. I've never seen anything like it. The Malcolm X grassroots movement coded this as excessive force, explaining... While Rivers was clearly a danger to himself and others, a trained crisis intervention team could have used non-lethal methods to subdue him. Well, maybe, maybe not. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to go through this report and imply or suggest that this victim deserved it, this guy who was shot by cops didn't. Many of the victims of police shootings in this report were unarmed, but many were actively firing at police when they were shot. The big question with this report isn't good shooting, bad shooting. It's why is there no better reliable report? The Justice Department has a report on arrest-related deaths, but that is vague. There is no official source providing an accurate answer to the following question. Who did the nation's policemen kill? What were their races? How many were unarmed? Jeff Alpert, a criminology professor at the University of South Carolina, says it's, quote, crazy that the FBI does not have a definitive database on police killings, but they don't. 
So Malcolm X grassroots movement issues a report. It includes security guards and the opinion that a man fleeing police who crashes into a tree was the victim of excessive force. The Cato Institute issues a similar report, but because their real interest isn't race, there's no racial breakdown. Other sites linked to these reports, they're cited extensively in the media because the reports we do need are so inaccessible or incomplete that they're virtually worthless. So Eric Holder, so Justice Department, so researchers at schools of criminal justice, do a proper report. Give us the stats before we solve this seemingly intractable, horrible, and pervasive societal challenge. It would help to have some agreed-upon basic facts to work from. And that's it for this week's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, killed a guy with a trident. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, emits a formidable scent. It stings the nostrils in a good way. You can listen in SoundCloud. You can go to iTunes. Right now, we would be the number two podcast in iTunes, nestled right up against this American life, but for the presence of the Daily Show podcast. I listen. I liked it. Dude from the Flophouse, Elliot, he's hysterical, Jessica Williams. But until there's a second episode of this podcast, it's an annual report in audio form. It is not a podcast. And like China does with Taiwan, I shall not recognize thee. Also, the gist is on Yo. The handle is podcast. Just the word podcast. Go to Yo and we'll yo you when the podcast is ready. For a similar experience, you can sign up for the daily newsletter. It will come to your inbox the moment the show is live. It's at slate.com slash gist email. We tweet at slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. So I want credit for not mentioning the word mahogany or the phrase leather-bound books or a mistranslation of San Diego. Movie quote, deep cuts going on here. A little bit more satisfying, right? So instead of saying, leave the gun, take the cannoli, how about, oh, who's being naive, Kay? Or instead of Attica, Attica, how about, Wyoming's not a country, Sal. Or instead of Sam, I told you never to play. How about, thanks for listening.